From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 165 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Our air quality is better today from, you know, all the fires and everything. I think the wind blew it out. We have sunshine. That's (laughs) amazing. So, because some of those uh, photos and stuff that have been uh, popping up over, well, previously over the weekend and the days before that literally made San Francisco and all of California look like, it was right out of Blade Runner 2049. Like, that stuff was scary. So. It was. The air has been horrible. And, um, you know, I have to wear a mask when I go out to water the garden, one of those N95 masks for smoke, because it was so bad. But yeah. but over the weekend, my daughter was visiting, and we continued a 30-year tradition. In Sacramento area, it... Um, it isn't fall until you go to Apple Hill. And then that's sort of our kickoff of the fall season. And Apple Hill's above Placerville. And once we got above Placerville, we were out of the smoke for the most part. It was wonderful. So it was like 83 degrees and sunny. There was a bit of a haze. Mm-hmm. But, and it's all of these orchards and wineries. And there's one brewery that you would like. It's the, um, it's it's oh gosh it's named after a dog. What was that breed of dog that was in the, in Fraser? It was a terrier. Yeah, yeah. Russell Terrier. It, it's anyway. It's named after that breed of dog. I've always wanted to go to that brewery. And anyway, so we and and you go to the orchards and you can pick apples or they have them there for you and they're selling all kinds of produce and pumpkins, of course. And but then they have bakeries. Yeah, that's- and you can get. It's the one that you love, like oh, the apple gosh. crumble or apple crisp, apple, apple crisp, crisp yeah. Sunday. It is our tradition, and Carol and I started this even before the children. Uh, we'd go up there, we'd have a, a picnic at one particular orchard, and out in there, you know, out amongst the apples, and we'd and then we would get their apple crisp Sundays. Oh my gosh, they are so good and so fattening. And then I get all my frozen stuff from that particular place that then I bring it for Thanksgiving down to Carol's family and Christmas and all that. So we did that. It was wonderful. And then they have vendors up there, arts and crafts vendors. So I bought a few things from some of our favorite vendors. We added a new, last, we, we have our orchards we always go to and then we add one every once in a while. So we added a new one that has, that the, they they um have apple donuts, all these oh. different varieties of apple donuts that are wonderful. I so. love apple cider donuts, and they uh-huh. basically do not exist in Florida, at least anywhere that I've found. So 
I, I truly miss it. But on the flip side, when when it's our blueberry picking season in in uh, March April time frame, we then have blueberry donuts, and I mean it's it's not the same, but it's it's pretty close. It, it, it sounds wonderful. It holds me over. Yeah, I I love a good donut. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, and in fact, they were selling blueberry lemonade donuts. Mm. So I got I got a couple of those. Oh. And, um, I, I already good. had my dessert for today, but I might have to <laughs> I might have to dip into some ice cream or something after we finish recording. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that so that, that was nice. It was just it was a fun time for us that we're carrying on the tradition and going up again in a few weeks with a bunch of friends. Doing the same kind of thing, but um, Apple Hill is wonderful. And you go different times in the season, and they have different varieties of apples, which is fun. And then, you know, the children are picking their pumpkins, and the, well, the Christmas tree farms will open later on, and people go up and cut down their trees and and all that. And, the, and all of the orchards and bakeries and all that are practicing, you know, all the COVID-19 precautions. So that was good. One even had security to make sure everybody was wearing their masks and everything. So, so it was, it was terrific. Yeah. Really good. I felt very safe there. Yeah. And you're, you're already safe enough being outdoors and such, but the Mm -hmm. fact that they're taking it even more seriously just is, uh, it's another, uh, it's another way to feel good. And yeah, it's anything that can all help us feel good at any time right now is very important. I agree. I agree. Now, now speaking of times, I'm wondering when is it head shaving time for you and the others? I, so that's, <laughs> that is a contentious. Uh, that is a contentious decision right now. So, uh, like for uh, the lowest tier person that first volunteered to do it was uh, Paul Krieger from our DVC and DCL coverage and. He doesn't live in Florida, so that's like that is that's the first step in it that we have to figure out him. And then Pete wants to go to his actual barber and do it. And I have not been to a barber shop since all this started. I I still do not feel comfortable going into a barber shop. I know it's weird, but that's that's like actually one of the places where I draw a line that I'm just not. I didn't love them before. I never. I Kylie cuts my hair all the time. And mm-hmm. I, so I never, unless it was like a very special occasion, I never go to, to a barber shop or any place to get my hair cut. And what about going to the Main Street barber shop in the Magic Kingdom? I'm sure they'll do it for you. I, I would rather, I would prefer <laughs> to do that versus if it was open, which I don't believe it is, but I would, if that was available, I would do that. But yeah, I'm going to see if, uh, if it's a thing where, where he's comfortable letting Kylie come over and at least if he wants it to be in the studio, then at least she can, she can do it from there and, or do it from my house. But we're, we're trying to figure out all those details. So um, I'm ready for it. So summer's still going on here today. It was 91 degrees and that's not going to end anytime soon. So I, I can shave my head and I'll still be comfortable. It's not like I'm going to get cold. <laughs> oh, too bad the Bippity Boppity Boutique's not open and you could go there. And then I'm, I'm sure they'd sprinkle a little glitter on your head or do something. I mean, if, if I go with, <laughs> if I get a haircut to what I believe it will be for shaving my head, I don't think anything's going to stick to it. <laughs> well, maybe they, they have some spray they can do because those, those, 
when I see those little girls, that hair is not moving. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> anyway, and and for folks who don't know, probably should give a little background on this. This all has to do with our, our Give Kids the World um, Labor Day Marathon show. Yeah, yeah. We talked about the the results uh, last week just briefly on it because we still weren't 100% sure on the actual total number, but it was, you know, we announced that we got over a million raised for Give Kids the World, and it did end up being, oh my gosh, now I can't even think of the total amount that we raised in was this it one. 138,000? Was it more than that? 100? I, I don't remember. It was like 182,000. We oh needed goodness. 138 to reach That's right. a million in what we were doing. It ended up being 182,000 was mm-hmm. the final tally on that. And uh, we gave, I think the winner of the cruise raffle ended up, uh, ended up getting, getting their cruise. And well, they haven't yet, obviously, but they, they were aware that they won the cruise. So all that, all that is fairly positive, but yeah, part of the, the, thing with it was if you make a direct donation then at certain tiers it was first paul krieger shaves his head then i shave my head and then pete shaves his head and then uh cory would shave his head at a certain level and i think we met that one too but then he was like okay well you know i'm not gonna actually shave it shave it and (laughs) what do you think shaving means so uh the the jury's still out on that one if that's gonna happen or not okay Well, we have a couple of other events coming up. Of course, we talked about them last day. Give Kids the World Night of a Million Lights from November 13th, uh, 2020 to uh, January 1st. um, I'm sorry, January 3rd of 2021. And this is where you can go to Give Kids the World and they have special events and you can go on some of the attractions they have there, have a scoop of ice cream. Their villas are going to be lit up with lights and... Dreams of Limited Travel, and I think um, Moving, Moving to Orlando. Orlando are each decorating a villa. Yep. Am I correct in that? You are correct yeah. in that. And uh, tickets will go on sale for that on October 1st at mm-hmm. gktw.org. And it's going to be 25 for adults and 15 for for kids slash teenagers ages 3 to 17, basically. And Cannot think of a, a cooler way to get out in in November through January here in Florida and experience this event because if it's if it's as cool as they think it's going to be, then it's going to be just just plain wonderful. Oh, and for I'm a just great looking cause. forward. I miss the Osborne Lights as I know many many people do, and so this is like the the next best thing to Osborne Lights. I'm really looking forward to this. Yep. Plus, and, I, I love Christmas lights. If there's like a 1940s, 1950s holiday music playing as well too, then I might, I might just try to sleep there every single night and hope they never <laughs> yeah. turn off the lights. That's my favorite era of Christmas music. Me too. So, um, and then we have give it's the Diz um, Family Reunion 2021. Of course, this also benefits Give Kids the World. They're putting it on. Um, it's March 25th through the 27th, 2021 at the Contemporary Resort. And I, I, are there tickets left for this? I yeah, think yes, there are some. Yeah. There's very limited VIP tickets left. And there are still 
regular tickets left and there's still space available for galaxy's edge and uh, you have to have a a ticket to the convention portion happening on the 25th and 26th to be able to buy a galaxy's edge ticket but yeah that's there's still availability there's still plenty of details to come on it so we talked last week about some of the speakers that are going to be on there from uh, uh jeff valley the the president of Walt Disney World, Linda Larkin, the voice of Jasmine, uh, Ridley Pearson, the author of the Kingdom Keeper series, Lee Cockerell, uh, just a, a bunch of different things. The Bear in the Big Blue House reunion panel, the all-new Mickey Mouse Club reunion panel, uh, stories from Disneyland's opening with Tom, Tom Nab, Bill Hosher, and uh, Bill Sullivan and uh, it just just so many cool things to that. There's still still announcements to be made with that as well. I know too, and also with the vendor portion of the event. And yeah, it's uh, it's it's turning out to uh, it's still sounding really cool. And um, yeah, it's it, tickets are available for that at gktw.org slash Diz fam and I, I wish I had more information on when the podcast recording was going to be because I thought it was going to be Sunday the 27th but I can't even get a definitive answer I don't know if it was said at one point and then that changed or something I have no idea but at first I thought it was the 28th and then it then I heard it was the 27th so I don't know yep. I'm staying till the 29th just it's- to make sure. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely going to happen. Just no idea exactly when. So that's why it's good to say details are still coming. Of course, yeah. if you want to stay on property, uh, you can take advantage of the room block that that Dreams Unlimited Travel is offering as part of the event, the the Dreams contribution because everything else is being run by Give Kids the World in this event like I I mentioned before. This is this it's branded Diz Family Reunion because you know it's it's primarily targeted as all of those who are in our Diz family, everyone out there, and uh, it's we want everyone to be able to get together in March and and hopefully be able to be back in a safe <clears throat> environment. But uh, it's not it's not a Diz run event, and so we we won't necessarily be at everything. It just might be some people popping in at time to time. Most of us should be there for the podcast recording. But uh, any any questions you have about the event, basically, uh, the easiest thing to do is to get in touch with Give Kids the World, and you can find that contact info. Uh, on the Diz Family reunion page on their website, or you can just directly email Stephen A at gktw.org and he will be able to help you with any questions you might have. And and we will have links to both of these events in our show notes as well. Of course. So. Okay, uh, just a reminder, we started telling last week we were prepping for our Q&A show. The deadline for questions is October 2nd, and we're looking at the show being released on October 12th. Craig, where should they submit their questions? Yeah, they uh, can go over to facebook.com slash disunplugged. If you don't have a Facebook, find a friend who has it and tell them that they need to go and ask a question on your behalf. But yes, the 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 post has already been made. It was made with the release of last week's show. And 
you can get on that Facebook page there, and it should be the pinned post at the top. I think someone unpinned it there for a second, but I repinned it to make sure that it's the first <laughs> post that you see when when you scroll on that page. And then, yeah, just in the comments below, ask the question. Make sure it's not a simple yes or no question. Don't ask us what what we think Walt Disney would think of this, that, or the other. But if you have theme park related questions, uh, Walt Disney questions, Imagineering questions, books, book questions, movie questions, movie, movie questions, any anything on that realm, uh, we would be happy to answer. And I can say that right now there hasn't been a lot of people actually submitting questions. So if you think you have a good one, then right now at this stage in the game, chances are we're probably going to answer it. So mm-hmm. get get to asking. Okay. And then we haven't forgotten about the rebirth of Storytime with Michael. Um, you know, we're still, we still have still in contact with the artists and uh, a um, composer for the show, the stories that we're looking at. Um, this is from Andrew Lang's uh, Little Blue Fairy book, which is available at Project Gutenberg. And so you can, you can just download the stories, you know, in a PDF or just read them online. The stories we're looking at in this first go round is The Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, Cinderella or the Little Glass Slipper, Hansel and Gretel, Snow White and Rose Red, The Brave Little Tailor. If you're interested in any of those stories, just send an email to both of us. Some are picked, but we still have people debating over which ones they want. So, um, so send an email to both of us. And we'll um, let you know. And these are, these are, this is an opportunity to hear the originals that, and then you'll learn a little about how Walt and his um, team um, adapted them for the Disney version of these fairy tales. Hey, well, during the pandemic with public buildings such as theaters, cinemas, museums, concert halls, places of worship, you know, restaurants and the like shut down. Many of these institutions have been able to extend their missions to our homes virtually. A few months back, the Walt Disney Family Museum started a series of programs called the Happily Ever After Hours virtual programs, similar to the types of in-house talks they regularly presented in their theater. So a few episodes back, I started to share what I learned from the talks. And so we, we talked about, uh, you know, Dave Goltz and Bob Gerd, Don Hahn, Leslie Iwerks had to say. We also looked at the wonderful women in Disney Imagineering and the wonderful women in the early life of Walt Disney. So in this episode, my theme is behind the scenes on the making of some of our favorite films. The format of these virtual programs is that for the first half, the hosts ask questions, and then in the second half, the guests give their presentation and fields questions from the audience. Um, museum members can then access recordings of these events through a members portal provided through email messages that are sent out monthly from the Walt Disney Family Museum. So a, a great weas- reason to be a member. So you can go back and watch them all. So first up, and, and you're going to hear the rattling of pages and all that because I write these all down in my trusty notebooks and I now have these in two notebooks. And uh, so you're going to hear all kinds of noise as I, I go back and forth. Um, first up is a presentation by directors Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise. 
And Gary Truesdale is a screenwriter, animator, and storyboard artist known for directing such films as Beauty and the Beast, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Atlantis, The Lost Empire. He frequently works with Kirk Weiss and Don Hahn. He planned to become an architect, but decided instead to study animation at Cal Arts, where he studied for three years. He was hired in 1982 to design storyboards and do other animation, and then he went to working uh, in designing restaurant menus and t-shirts. Truesdale was hired by Walt Disney Feature Animation in 1985 as an effects animator on The Black Cauldron. He gained true prominence in his field with the success of his animated film directorial debut, Beauty and the Beast which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture and won a LAFCA Award. He later directed The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1966 and Atlantis The Lost Empire in 2001. Following the release of Atlantis, he was attached to solely direct Nomeo and Juliet, but he was dismissed from the project following creative differences with then-feature animation president, David Staten. I never saw Romeo and Juliet. I haven't seen it either, but I know the people, mostly the kids who saw it, loved it. I mean, clearly, it got a sequel, so it couldn't have been too terrible. But yeah, the, the kids that loved it, like, loved it. So hmm. I'll have to watch it. I wonder if it'll appear on Disney Plus at some point. Maybe it's already there. I just don't know it. Well, he later moved to DreamWorks Animation in 2003, where he worked on projects such as the Madagascar Penguins in A Christmas Caper, Shrek the Halls, and Scared Shrekless. Kirk Wise is a director, animator, and screenwriter, best known for his work at Walt Disney Animation Studios. Wise has directed Disney animated films such as Beauty and the Beast, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Atlantis, The Lost Empire. He also directed the English-language translation of Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away. And Wise graduated from Palo Alto High School and went on to study character animation at CalArts. Early in his career, Wise worked as an animator on Disney's Sport Goofy in Soccer Mania 1987, 1986's The Great Mouse Detective, uh, 1987's The Brave Little Toaster, and Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories episode, Family Dog. I like that series, Amazing Stories. I think it's coming back. Aren't they resurrecting that? It already came out somewhere. Oh, it did. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have to find it. See if it's as good as it was before. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I'm just going to look it up now or it's going to drive me nuts. Okay. All righty. Well, I'll continue and then you can let me know. Let us know. Okay. Returning to Walt Disney Feature Animation, he began to work on The Great Mouse Detective, which came out in 1986, as an assistant animator, but eventually joined the story department where he was reunited with former CalArts classmate Gary Truesdale. After working on storyboard artists on The Rescuers Down Under and Prince and the Pauper, Wise and Trostale were responsible for helming the celebrated Beauty and the Beast in 1991, the first animated feature to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. Okay, so I'm, those are their introductions. And I'm gonna, did you find out about, uh, the amazing stories. I, I did. the The new version is it was on Apple Plus. So oh, okay. If you have uh, 
Apple TV Plus, then, then you can watch Amazing Stories. And I don't know if it's still accurate, but if you want to watch the classic episodes, I believe they are available uh, through NBC. So, Oh, I'm on not, Peacock? I'm not sure if it's on Peacock. It said at the time the article was written, it was back in March, and it said at that time it was NBC.com that they were available through. So mm. I... I don't have an update on that. If it's still available on NBC.com, if it's now on Peacock, I'm not quite sure. But uh, it's it's clearly out there to, to watch okay. in some capacity. So, yeah. All righty. I will look for those. Those are fun. So the first question. Now, this is from my notes. Um, first question was, how did they meet? Well, I've sort of gone over it a little. Um, they met at CalArts, and then they crossed paths at Disney in the story department. Uh, at, when they were working on the rescuers down under, uh, they were teamed up to work on the Roger Rabbit short baby buggy blunder, but it didn't get picked for production. Apparently the way it works is you work on a whole bunch of things, different storyboard artists and animators that they, they work on different shorts and films, and then they make their pitches in one big meeting and Roger Rabbit, baby buggy, Blunder did not get selected. But then they worked on the storyboards for Cranium Command, and they got promoted to direct after there was a whole shakeup in the production team for that project. And they liked it because it combined audio animatronics with in-theater effects and animation. And as I already mentioned, they made their featured directorial debut in Beauty and the Beast, and they were asked how did Beauty and the Beast changed their lives and their approach to filmmaking. And they said, once again, like their other projects, they just got tossed into it. Uh, the studio had worked their way through different artists, and they were working on Goofy and the Apes. And they got called into the office at 9.15 a.m. and asked if they could be on a plane to New York on Wednesday. because, And I think this was Tuesday. Um, because they might um, direct Beauty and the Beast. So the original team had worked on it for a year. And of course, we know that Walt had started working on it way back, like in the 30s and in the 40s, and then they tried it again in the 50s and couldn't get a handle around it. But the studio just didn't like what, didn't like the story that the, the team had come up with, um, especially after the success of The Little Mermaid. And Howard Ashman then was brought in as executive producer, and he had written tentpole musical numbers for the film. And you'll recall this if you heard uh, our interview with Don Hahn a few weeks back about Howard, the documentary. So then they, after Beauty and the Beast, they worked on a project about humpback whales. When Jeffrey Katzenberg told them, you want to work on this next? this next project because it'll change your life. And that was the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And the challenge they found was staying true to the spirit of the original story, previous film versions, and keeping it Disney. Because if you read the book, this is not a happy tale, and it does not have a happy ending. If you have seen the stage um, version, it doesn't have a happy ending. Um. The book is a national treasure in France, and the film was accepted in that country, unlike, um, I guess, what Mulan is going through right now. 
not being accepted in China. Yeah, I mean, Mulan's not being accepted by a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's become very controversial. Now, the next project was Atlantis, The Lost Empire. And this was another departure for Disney. Uh, the project came about in an effort to keep the same crew that had worked together on Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback and all that together. Don Hahn said we should come up with a project, but we, that we want to do instead of having the studio executives assign one to us. So they had lunch in a Mexican restaurant and they decided to do a live action adventure film like Walt had done. And they pitched it to the executives by saying, we've been doing films in fantasy land. Let's take a left and do a film in adventure land. And the executives liked it and they were very supportive. And they said they had a really good storyboard presentation and they represented all the different departments, layout department, directors, cinematography, there was humor, there's character development, scenic designs, there was special effects. And uh, I just recently watched Atlantis Lost Empire because I hadn't seen it when it first came out. And I enjoyed it. You know, it wasn't a great film, but I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the story. Yeah, I don't, I don't care for it at all. <laughs> not, <laughs> not to be uh, completely negative about it. It just, there's nothing that, that sticks with me about it. I, I didn't see it when it first came out because at that point I was 14, 15. So it was like, eh, I don't care about Disney movies for, for that solid like four years that I was acting like that. Meanwhile, I'm still watching. Pixar movies left and right, so I don't I don't know what my my beef was with some of the Disney movies, but I it, it just I didn't want to watch it then, and then when I finally did come around to it, it just it I I was very I, I just wasn't captivated by it, and mm-hmm. the the interesting thing though is for I I didn't really see it until that I went to that Fan Days event in in Paris where I posted a picture right away of Milo and people like were going insane over the fact that Milo was a meet and greet. And I know one of the times he was a meet and greet at the magic kingdom or Disneyland. I don't remember which one people were losing their minds about too. So I think it was just, you know, I'm, I'm a kid of the late eighties. I think some of the kids that were born in the mid nineties, I think to them, this is like, this is where Disney was, was peak. It, mm-hmm. It's stuff like Atlantis, and they love they love this movie. So it definitely has a it it has a an audience. Just it not not mine. Not yeah. Not I remember I talked about it. I think a few episodes back when I had rewatched it, and I one thing is I found Michael J. Fox's um, voice distracting because he's so identifiable in his other well known characters, and it. it just sort of took me out of the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Always because he because he, he sounds the same no matter what. Yeah, he I, does. I look forward to the day that animation goes through a complete change where there someone decides one day, hey, let's just not use any recognizable celebrities and only just cast nobodies that are really good voice artists. 
and that one movie becomes a success and then that becomes the trend in Hollywood. That would be nice if they sort of went back to that way, way back in the day. Yeah. They, they shared some memories of Howard Ashman. Um, they said he taught us a lot, especially at casting calls, how to talk to singers, how to get a performance out of them, how to talk to an actor and actress, how to give a voice actor direction. He said he was good at, he, or he was at ground zero of the Disney Renaissance. His approach to storytelling and Broadway music and animation changed how Disney made animated films. They, and they said the Sherman brothers were the last team to play that role until Howard Ashman. And then they mentioned Don Hahn's documentary because this is this is this is a few months back. This talk, mm-hmm. you know, that, that had documentary on Howard Ashman will debut on Disney Plus this summer. Anyway, so going back to Atlantis, um, they said for they talked about their research for Atlantis because they said the Mulan team they got to go to China, the Lion King they got to go to Africa, and the Atlantis team they got to go to Carlsbad Caverns and crawl around in tight spaces. To get a feel for underground spaces. Um, they read everything they could. They were heavily influenced by Edgar Casey because the film would be more, um, fun that way. And they said they were very proud that their steampunk look influenced films 20 years later. That might be one of the reasons for its popularity. I think was the, I, the steampunk feel. Yeah, I would definitely, I, I would agree with that assessment. Yeah. Um, for them, 2D animation is their first love. Hand-drawn animation, they said, is a uniquely American art form, just like jazz is a very unique art form to America. And they said, and animation is an art for, form, in the U.S. was nurtured by Walt Disney. And Gary Truesdale hopes that today's animators learn hand-drawn animation from the animators um, from the 90s, the way they learned from the early animators. And then they finally concluded that animation is a team sport, and everyone's contributions need to be weighed equally, and you have to be without an ego. Uh, a director has to nurture an environment of collaboration so that the best ideas come out. And, and that's true really in any environment. If you're, if you're, a, if you're a people, you know, manager, you have to nurture a collaborative environment so the best ideas come out. Yep. So. Yeah. It's, and that, sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and that's what I learned from that talk. Yeah, it's a it's a shame that they're not more prominent, uh, and they haven't been necessarily for for a lot of years. Because like Kirk Wise in particular, I, I think they're both extremely talented. But Kirk Wise with uh, with what he had on his resume in particular, and uh, it's just they they were so so talented. And mm-hmm. I mean, again, still, still are talented and I'm sure they're still doing tons of stuff that they don't necessarily get, get as much credit for as they deserve with it, even if it's just consulting and such. But, uh, it's, it, I, I would like to see them be able to do, 
to continue working because they're both they're only in their late fifties or early sixties. So that's for for even uh, for even Disney, you know, they're not they're not necessarily old yet. <laughs> no, no, not yet. They're, they're they're too young to get the lifetime achievement award. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> I guess I would, it, what it, do we say? It was Gary Trousdale who's still it, he's at Pix or at DreamWorks, or was that Kirk Wise? I think it was Gary. Yeah. So I mean, it, they'd have to we'd have to bring him back over and dust off Kirk Wise and get him going. But I, I think they should get to reunite at Disney for something else. Don't let don't let Atlantis be the last uh, impact major impact that they had. They need another. I agree. Show. I agree. I, I especially now that. Uh, you know, D- D- Disney's willing to take more risks with some of their animated films. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the remakes, but with some of their others. So, um, it would be good. Yeah. Okay, next is a talk from Brenda Chapman and Kevin Lima. Brenda Chapman is the first female director of a feature animated film at a major studio. She wrote and co-directed 2012's Brave for Disney Pixar, which led her to becoming the first woman to win an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Her previous credits include directing The Prince of Egypt. Of course, that's not a Disney film. I think that's DreamWorks. And I, I like that film a lot. And and she also worked on The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and The Lion King. Kevin Lima directed the Disney live-action animation hybrid Enchanted, starring Amy Adams, as well as a Goofy movie and Tarzan. He also previously won a Directors Guild of America Award for directing um, Eloise at Christmas Time. His additional credits include 102 Dalmatians, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. And in case you didn't know, they are married. <laughs> so that's why they... In every presentation, they're always there. Yep. They're always together. <laughs> so, okay. And they, they, they're really good friends of the Walt Disney Family Museum. They are there a lot. So now they both, uh, formed, um, Twas Entertainment. And this is a hybrid live action and, um, makes hybrid live action and animated films. And they, they have their own, um, pro- production company too. Yeah. So. Anyway, so they have a common theme in their films, and that's love between a parent and child. So, so for Kevin, his sort of major one that's more, most meaningful for him is a Goofy movie, and that's one we both really enjoy. I only just saw it recently and loved it. So, And I know you saw that way back in the day. Oh yeah, that's one of your favorites, Craig. Yep, and it yeah. still is. So it's I. He's one of my favorites solely just for that. Uh, beyond mm-hmm. every other amazing thing that he's done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and for Brenda, of course, it's Brave. So for Brenda, uh, it Brave came from being a mom who's working and raising a daughter. And at four, she was like a little teenager. So that mother-daughter relationship was important to her. She had a close relationship um, with her mother, but they always butted heads. And with her daughter, she wanted to tell that story. And so, um, and, and she also mentioned that she wanted to have a mother in a Disney film. Because it's usually that's the parent that's missing yep. in the film. Um, for Kevin, 
This is interesting. He worked out his relationship with his father whilst working on a goofy movie because his father left the family when Kevin was 12 years old and he didn't see his father again for 25 years. And so he worked through some of the turmoil that he felt about that in the goofy movie. And he didn't realize that it had gained a cult following. And it wasn't until the 20th anniversary of the El Capitan and people came in costume and shouted out the lines and they danced. And Kevin saw this and he said he cried through most of the film. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, that is. That is. That's very touching. Now, Brenda worked on the Pines of Rome segment of Fantasia 2000. And if you remember, that's the the flying whales. Um, She listened to the music and saw what images came to her mind. But the director wanted flying sailboats. But Brenda didn't like the sailboat idea. And she envisioned whales. And so that's what made it into the film. Now, for, that's a good choice. <laughs> yeah. At first, I didn't get it because I took our children to see it on, you know, at a real IMAX theater in downtown Sacramento. And, um, I didn't get it at first, but then when I rewatched it, I just thought, this is just beautiful. That whole segment. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I love the, I love the music. So now for Kevin, Enchanted was a love letter to Walt's legacy. And when he first read the script, it was all snarky and cynical. And he said he wanted to make it a love letter to Walt's legacy and embrace what everyone loved about Walt's films. So at every turn, he tried to point back at a Disney film or theme. And Enchanted is one of my favorite films. Yep. I really it enjoy that. Still holds up to this day. It is still so so entertaining. And with the can't remember when the sequel's coming, but it's just going to reignite that passion in it for everyone. But I think you know it's one of those it's one of those movies that as soon as like a song comes on from Enchanted somewhere, everyone perks right up, and it's it yeah. takes them right back to that movie immediately. Oh yeah, the happy little working song and um, how do you know he loves you? Oh, those are, those are wonderful films, uh, wonderful musical sequences. Yeah. So. Now Brenda was the first woman director, like I said, of an animated film, Prince of Egypt. She enjoys telling stories from others' perspectives, not just the male perspective, to broaden the horizons of the films. Uh, now her latest film, Come Away has a mixed race family. The concept is what if Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan were actually siblings that then were separated as they went on their different paths. And now they're back together and they've married and have children of their own. And the plot of the story is the eldest child of one of them has passed away and they are they're coping with that grief and it it played at the Sundance film festival, but I read a couple of months back that it has not been picked up by a studio for distribution. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm hoping, heard of it. yeah, well, I'm hoping that's going to change that somehow we're going to get to see this film because it's a fascinating concept. Yeah. 
it so. could be a thing where uh, you know next time Netflix is going through a round of buying stuff when they don't have anything that they're a hundred percent working on in house, then maybe they'll just pick it up to have it. So I'm sure it'll see the light of the light of day beyond film festivals at some point here in the future. I hope so. There's some images online and it looks like it's beautifully photographed and costumed and all that. So I'm looking forward to the day it's out there. Um, so somebody asked, what's it like working with each other in the same company, Twas Entertainment? And they said they started by writing something together and it went well. Well, then Fox approached them and asked them, hey, do you want to start a production company? And they said, okay. So um, This is Fox pre-Disney. Um, and they said the difference between live action and animation is that in animation, you pre-edit through storyboarding. And in live action, you hope you have filmed everything you need, and then you edit it together. Although I know in a lot of live action films, there is storyboarding involved mm-hmm. in it. And then one of the listeners was, hey, hey Muppeteer, Dave Golds. And he oh, asked wow. a question. Yeah. He said, I heard you love the Muppets and were a puppeteer. And Kevin said, yep, when he was 10, he made his own puppets with his grandmother and he put on his own shows. A puppetry company asked him to become an apprentice. And he was a puppeteer from 14 years old to 25 years old. And he made, wrote, and constructed puppet shows. So I thought that was interesting. That is, yeah. Yeah. And when Kevin saw the Jungle Book, the animated version with his mother when he was five he asked his mother what were all those names were because he was talking about the credits she said those are the people who made the film and kevin said i want to do that and puppetry taught him how to communicate and work with actors is that interesting how many times craig when we've interviewed people and they have said in a young age when they've watched a disney film that spark created a spark in them and they saw those credits they decided that's what they were going to do. Yeah, I we've heard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I felt like that at one point too. Obviously, it's not what I went and did, but uh, I think I think anyone who's obsessed with movies and has even the slightest inkling of of getting into that field, I think almost everyone has had that same epiphany and we're the ones who even still nowadays that we don't leave the theater until the entire credits are over Uh just because we appreciate every single person who who makes the movie and i I know there's plenty of theater ushers out there who who hate us for it but it's just i know they all those teenagers stand there and i'm the only one in the theater I and know. I'm listening. But also, you. first of all, because we've interviewed and met so many people, I like to see, do I recognize anybody And um, in it? But where else can you hear the soundtrack so nicely mm-hmm. than in that big auditorium with those Dolby Atmos speakers and, and all that? So that's why I like to sit through the end. Yeah, I uh, luckily, I'm okay with the teenagers glaring at me. There was only <laughs> one moment, though, and I can't even remember what movie it was, but the guy walked in and he literally yelled at me, like, there's no after credit scene. And I said, I know, 
I just want to watch it. So <laughs> That's funny. It, it wouldn't just be there. They would put it, if they wanted to force you to watch it, it would be at the front of the movie like it used to be. But mm-hmm. it's at the end, and I appreciate it. And like you said, a lot of times it gives you a chance to hear the musical motifs that you, you enjoyed already the first time around or a song that got cut from the movie. It's just, there's so much to, so many good things about credits. Sit through the credits yeah. if we ever go and sit in movie theaters again one day so do um oh our our movie theater up the road because the county 10 minutes from here has opened up again um there's there's a movie theater open so ones in our county have not so but um don't you want to when you know there's an after credit scene and people are leaving don't you just want to shout sit down (laughs) do you know what you're missing yeah, it's, I mean, and then when they don't, like, those people, I'm like, did you, chances are, if one of you cared about the movie, then you'd both stay and sit through it. But when you like, two people who get up and walk out, like, if you don't care enough about the movie to sit through, but I saw you enjoy it the entire time, and you were laughing and smiling, like, I feel like you would want to sit through. It, but mm-hmm. then it's like, well, maybe they genuinely hated it, and they're like, nope. Don't care. I just want to get out. Yeah. So oh, I, I'll well. never understand people, but people probably also <laughs> say the same thing about me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then another question was, what do you wish you knew before your first directorship? Kevin said he wishes he knew how to listen better. Brenda said she wished she had more self-confidence. She learned she had the knowledge, but she was very nervous. Uh, Kevin talked about Goofy's movie, the, the question of Max's mom and what happened to her. And he, he said that they talked about explaining what happened to her, but felt that they couldn't tell the story. And he said they did cut a scene when Max and Goofy go to a family reunion on their journey. And then the question came up, 2D versus 3D. And he said, in 2D, you just draw and paint and you know what it'll look like. 3D, it has to be drawn, textured, you know, colorized, uh, and all this. So it goes through all these stages. So you don't always know what it's going to look like at the end because you're not, you may not be fully involved in the whole process. Mm-hmm. So then he asked, who is their most um, notable mentor and what advice did the mentor give them? For Kevin, it was his high school art teacher who convinced him to go to Cal Arts because Kevin wanted to go into theater. And after four months of that, he realized his art teacher was right. For Brenda, it was the late, great Joe Ranft. Um, he was teaching story at CalArts, and Brenda thought she wanted to be an animator, but she liked working on the story. So for her student film, Joe saw her storyboards and said, have you ever thought of going into story? And she hadn't, but did. And then he encouraged her to work for Disney, and then he invited her to uh, work at Pixar. So, so they said, what, what keeps you going when you doubt yourself on a film? And Brenda said, remember why you decided to work on it and what made you passionate about it and dig deep and try to find it again. And I think that's good advice no matter what your talent or your, your field is. You, you have to find, you have to always remember what made you passionate about it and find it again. And then apply it. Yeah. 
So they said, which classic Disney artist most influenced your style? Brenda said it was Roger Allers or Allers. He was the director of The Lion King. Um, and he did the storyboards on The Little Mermaid. He in his influences, uh, her other influences were storyboard artists, including Bill Peet and Mary Blair. For Kevin, it was mainly John Lounsbury and Glenn Keane and, and a non Disney artist, Jim Henson. And he says, because everyone says his characters look like Muppets. And when looking for a mother daughter fairy tale, none of the Grimm stories had what, um, had one. So Brenda had to go through many, many stories and she used Snow White and Rose Red as a model for what would become brave. Now, Kevin, when he was working on Enchanted, he wanted to get Mary Costas and Eileen Woods from, of course, from um, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty as older women in the ballroom scene. But at the last minute, they didn't feel up to it. So they weren't included because, you know, he included, you know, Jody Benson and, and others, you yeah. know, in the film. Yeah. Um, now, Brenda Chapman's favorite storyboard scene was in The Rescue is Down Under, a scene where um, Cody is stealing an egg from the eagle's nest. And for Kevin, it's the opening of Tarzan, because he said for the first eight minutes, there's no dialogue. And Brenda said after seeing the stage version of The Lion King, she was disappointed that she hadn't made Rafiki a female in the animated film. And Kevin uh, made the jump to having his own production company so he could gain control over his own work. He had worked on some projects for years that got shut down and that had nothing to do with the project himself. Um, Brenda says she misses the collaboration of a group in the initial development of a project, but she was tired of giving her ideas away. And that's it for the talk. For uh, Brenda Chapman and Kevin Lima. Yeah, now uh, they're both very, very talented, and uh, they're gonna they're they're gonna continue making a lot of good stuff over the years. Oh, so yeah. I wish I wish that you know with Brenda Chapman in particular, she sometimes gets a lot of flack for Brave, and I don't think that's deserved at all. So it's you know it's just it's the pixar problem that when you have so many good pixar movies that the ones that versus the ones that when you compare to other studios are still are still really good movies uh they they just sometimes don't compare to the the pixar classics and and that hurts it in the long run but i don't think it's anything that she did necessarily with the choices as director in that it's just pixar's a it's a tough place so yeah and and I like Brave, so yeah, I think it's, it's a terrific film. It's uh, it's in my lower lower list of Pixar movies, but again, it's just when you have when you have movies that are twelve of them are easily classics, and then mm -hmm. you have a bunch of good ones, and then only one truly truly bad one, and then maybe a couple others that could <laughs> that has to be Monsters Inc. or Monsters University. <laughs> The truly bad one, in my opinion, is Cars 2. And oh, oh, yeah. Cars yeah. 2 is the worst. And then probably, for me, Monsters University. I love Monsters, Inc. I, Monsters, Inc. is one of my favorites. But Monsters University, that was... 
I I think that was one of my most recent disappointments where I could not have been more excited about a movie and then it felt like I was a balloon just letting all of the helium out of it and yeah. it's cute but it just it would have been better leaving it without telling the story of how how two characters somehow became younger but sounded older. <laughs> yeah, and it just seemed like a forced sequel to me. Yep. It was. Yeah. It definitely was. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The final talk in, in our episode today is by Dennis Murin, who is a special effects artist and supervisor. He has worked on the films of Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, and George Lucas, amongst others. He's won nine Oscars in total, eight for Best Visual Effects and a Technical Achievement Academy Award. So he uh, worked at Industrial Lights and Magic on the original Star Wars trilogy, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Jurassic Park and its sequels. He worked on E.T. the Extraterrestrial Terminator 2 and so many more. And at Disneyland, he worked on Captain EO and Star Tours. So he was asked what films were influential to him growing up. And he said War of the Worlds, the original, not the Tom Cruise vehicle. And The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And both of these were my favorites when I was a boy growing up, because they were on television regularly by that time. He said as a kid, he made his own homemade films with effects. And then George Lucas and Steven Spielberg came along, and they they wanted to make the films that he had been making as a kid. He saw Darby O'Gill, and he became fascinated with forced perspective, and he created his own version and figured out the effects on his own. He showed some of the effect, the, the films he made when he was 12. They are amazing with the forced perspective and the special effects that he did. I mean, yeah. for a 12-year-old back in the 50s, and, and and all that because he's a couple years older than I am. I, I mean, that's ama- it was amazing what he did. I was gonna say yeah. if you could figure out force perspective and enough that you can try to recreate it on your own at home, <clears throat> then you can basically you can do anything. Because I even you know I I know the concept of it. I've I've done the Warner Brothers Studio tour where you get to sit in the the Gandalf seat and then the the uh, Bilbo Baggins seat and do the force perspective trick. Like I know it all, but then in theory, when I, I try to do it with anything, it just, it is so difficult. So yeah, yeah. You, you can only go up from there. Yeah. He did a scene where with a buddy of his and it looked like, it, it looked like a scene out of Gulliver's travels where this little person is kicking the leg of the big person, which I believe was Dennis. It was at 12 Good. and it was incredible. Or he'd have this big, hand reached down he used a mirror with this big that reflected a hand and it was as if it was reaching over a fence trying to grab dennis and it was it was impressive really impressive he was born to do it (laughs) yes i was just going to say that absolutely and now he said there were a lot of Disney families living in La Cañada where where he was growing up so he said he, he could have overheard from wives of, you know, Disney employees, how some of the effects are created. And then this is where he showed clips of some of his boyhood films. And the teachers would have him show his films in class. Uh, to, he said to keep the students interested, but he said he thinks also to keep himself interested. 
what was going on. When he graduated um, from college, he could, the only work he could get was in commercials. And he was thinking of getting out of the business because there was no future. Then a friend of his heard that George Lucas was making a space film somewhere in Los Angeles. Of course, that turned out to be Star Wars. And the company he was working for was shut down. And then he interviewed with the company that was doing Star Wars, and he got hired as a cameraman. So he was used to doing the old school special effects with models and lighting and all kinds of tricks with the limited tools that they had at the time. But George Lucas was working with John Dykstra to bring over the special effects that had been used from 2001 A Space Odyssey, which also used some CG effects as well as the models. And he said no one was doing that kind of work anymore. So Dennis was excited to learning about this. And of course, 2001 is, for both of us, one of our favorite films. Yep, yep. So, so, and he said it was scary because he didn't know anyone or anything about it. And he thought, you know, he wouldn't be any good at it. But it turns out no one knew anything about it. So, because it was all just so new. So his stop motion background helped him to pre-visualize um, setting up the scenes. And he t- talked about how they could get the emotions of the Cyclops and Sinbad. Remember those old Sinbad films for Ray yeah. Harryhausen? Yep, yep. Uh, again, favorite boyhood films of mine. Well, he said that he showed the scene of the Cyclops and he slowed it down to where it was like a frame at a time when the Cyclops was being attacked and a spear was being thrown at him. And he said through stop motion by Ray Harryhausen, um, he showed all the emotion that was shown in the Cyclops face and through his movements. And he said that couldn't be done with someone wearing a rubber mask. And But Walt Disney could do it through animation. And so he talked about how Ray Harryhausen was very cutting edge at the time. And those films are still fun to watch. Oh, yeah. I, um, I'll catch them on TCM every now and then and mm-hmm. get hooked back into it. So it's, it's yeah. ones you don't have to necessarily be involved in the story to enjoy it. Mm-mm. But when I was a boy, I always loved scenes with fighting skeleton, skeletons that yeah. he did. <laughs> oh, it's it's it is so much. It's so fun to watch, especially as you know, as that field has progressed with, you know, it, it, some of the work that Henry Selleck did with Nightmare Before Christmas, and then then Coraline, and how Leica has really gone to the next level with stop motion and has mm-hmm. made it look more beautiful than ever. So mm-hmm. it's it, it's cool to go back to like. Go back and see Harryhausen, which of course impacted so many people, and uh, it's just a, just a big stepping stone for so many. So it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. So Dennis said that when he was twelve years old, he saw that Sinbad film eight times the week it came out to try and learn stop uh, motion animation. He talked about how it's sort of hard to get to the theater eight times when you're 12 in a week, but his mother was really good about taking him. He said he was never good at it because he has an impatient personality, but he worked with others who were good at it. So he said seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey helped him open his eyes to trying things he had never done before and getting out of his comfort zone. 
So when so he won an Academy Award for Empire Strikes Back, and then Dennis had to move to Marin to work on it because George Lucas had relocated at that time. And he said it was very exciting. And he said it was amazing to get out of the smog area to Marin County, you know, on the shores of San Francisco Bay. And he talked about just how more laid back it is. It was all green. Did going to the fern bars at the time, they're all wood with plants and all that kind of stuff. So I grew up right across the bay from that. Um, he said it was harder to do Empire Strikes Back than Star Wars. Um, be- and, and the thing is, the people up there weren't in the industry in Marin County. So they had to train people. Uh, they had to, they were using new tools. The, um, more models were used and they were streamlined. And he said they barely got that film done on time. So he said they built large sets. For example, Hoth with, they had the large background painting. Then they had the mid ground painted on glass. And then they had the stop action models of the Tauntaun and the At-Ats. And then through stop motion, um, the animators worked to create the movement and they made everything believable. And the technology he said they were using at the time was very hard. So, Dennis would then get it and he had to make sure there were no, sh- there were no shakiness and uh, that there, there were no lines uh, around the objects. And he felt it was like back working on King Kong. And he said it was amazing to look at the, this huge landscape model. Then you look through the, the little camera and, and then you were transported into another world. And so he appreciated the talent that went into making these worlds come alive. So then he talked about working on Captain Neo and Star Tours, mainly Star Tours. He said he went to Disneyland one month after it opened when he was a boy. He worked with Tony Baxter and Tom Fitzgerald to see the, um, and he, what he enjoyed was seeing the behind the scenes of WED is now imagineering and the and the the whole machinery of the pre-ride experience then through the repeatability of the ride then the post exits of the ride that was necessarily keep the flow going and not break down and that's he kept saying that over and over again how they could repeat this so many times in one day and have it not break down and then looking out the front port of the pod, the, he, he kept calling the, you know, the shuttle, the little thing, the pod. It, he said the film had to be continuous. You couldn't cut away. So everything had to move in and out of the, uh, of the screen or it would appear when the pod turned and it all had to be timed emotionally so that guests had time to respond emotionally and understand what was happening. And they had to keep it misleading. And it was intentionally misleading from the start by saying, Oh, there were, you know, when you're in the queue, there are four or five destinations you were in, but you were going to the moon of Endor, which you said no kid wanted to do. Then through an error, you go on this adventure with danger and space battles and ice fields, all wrapped up in a little four-minute movie that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So so it is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was wrong, though, because I would have uh, I would have loved to go to the moon of Endor as a kid. I think, I think most kids... <laughs> 
probably wanted to go to the moon of Endor and hang out with the Ewoks and hug them and be friends forever. So he's wrong (laughs) on that, but uh, you know, he he, point well made. Well, when they were making it, he said they had rough cuts and the, and the dailies. And so Dennis would fly down from Marin and then it'd sit in a simulator pod that they had there at the studio to watch the dailies and, and, They'd watch it with the, they'd sit in the pod, watch it with the movement. So then they would make edits to the films and then changes to the simulator program. And he said, in the end, it all seems so effortless to the guests, which, which is it, true. And yeah. that's the sign of a good attraction. That it seems effortless. Exactly. It, it seems effortless, but those, I've been on simulators before. I think we all have when they've been slightly when they've been slightly off profile. So mm-hmm. a, a great example was when I was working at, it might've been when I was already over a dragon challenge, but there was a one point where they tried to mess around with the profile, the, the movement. When I say profile, the way the vehicle moves at forbidden journey and tried to test something <clears throat> different with it. And it was making people so sick because it was just slightly off of what was happening on the screens and such. And so that's like it, that it, it rings true for something, whether it's star tours or body wars before that or anything. If, if it is, and I think we talked about this when we did our body wars episode, if it's slightly off and slightly doesn't feel realistic, then that can just ruin people on simulators. Mm-hmm. So it's, it seems effortless, but no, it's, it is a, it's an art. It's a talent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then then they got into Jurassic Park, and computer graphics was used for the dinosaurs, which was new technology. Uh, Dennis had worked with CG with Lucasfilm in the 1980s, and then on Young Sherlock Holmes, and then on The Abyss. And he said it took forever in Jurassic Park to get the backgrounds onto the film, because the technology just wasn't there. And But he said the movie that pushed them way ahead in the technology was Terminator 2 because they got the software, the talent, the digital technology to create a character that looked like it was a human made out of metal alloy and they could light it and they got, and they got perfect lighting. And then Jurassic Park came along, but getting the CG dinosaurs to work was an unknown. And he, uh, you know, worked with the stop motion armature of the dinosaur with sensors that allowed the digital animators to create the dinosaurs with skins. So they mixed stop motion animation with computer graphic animation to create the film. And I believe Bob Gurr actually um, helped create the armature, the models. No. And all that as well. And, and I know he worked at creating the big T-Rex yeah. um, model as well. But they had this... Um, when they did a stop motion uh, exhibit at the Walt Disney Family Museum, they had the armatures for the dinosaurs, some of the dinosaurs at Jurassic Park there. It's fascinating to see. It's cool. It's it's a shame that people just don't talk about Jurassic Park anymore. Oh, it's funny. My next door neighbor, they, uh, their little boy who's five, he got a Jurassic Park Lego set and he had never seen the film. And so, uh, when I saw him 
he who was outside playing. And I said, Oh, so how's your day today? And he said, Oh, we just watched Jurassic Park. And I said, Oh, cause my daughter and I just watched it a few weeks prior. I said, Oh, what'd you think of it? And he said, I liked it, but it was really scary. And then his dad, who was out there said, Yeah, we, we, there, it was a little intense. <laughs> so. Anyway, but then they went in to do the Lego set. Oh, no. you It, it was a rite <laughs> of passage. I mean, first off, I need to point out, I was being extremely sarcastic. It's, I mean, the dinosaur, specifically the T-Rex, but all the dinosaurs in the movie, they are still looked at, especially with people who care about CG. And they're still looked at at this point today as the way that that format was perfected. It's, I, I, I don't understand how... In the early years of CG and that really being the first big test after Terminator 2 with it, I don't understand how they perfected it. And it's gone on to become this other thing that is really, really important and really shapes movies. But most of the stuff that's made today, CG in movies, it doesn't have even an it doesn't have a tenth of the realism that the dinosaurs have in mm-hmm. Jurassic Park. It's. It is still a, a crowning achievement, and that's why we were all terrified of it when we were seeing it in the 90s and why it felt so real. And I don't think the same resonance could be said about the sequel to Jurassic World that just did not even feel slightly real at all. Yeah, and maybe it was because of that combination of stop motion yeah. and CG animation that they could create that. He did show clips, some behind the scenes of how they made it. And it was fascinating to see. He said, there's also ways to cheat with CG. For example, um, he used CG lighting on the teeth of the dinosaurs to remind you that that's not where you want to go. Um, But he said, you couldn't do that on the set. He said, you know, like if it was a big giant model, you couldn't lay like a little row of lights, you know, in the mouth and get away with it. Yeah, yeah. And also, he would put, using CG, he would put glints in the eyes of the animals to make them look alive, and that they were thinking, even though there was no light source. So, so he was asked, where does he see the future of visual effects? Because they talked about, like, the Mandalorian. You know, we've seen the making of the Mandalorian, how they, that, I forget what they called it, but you know that, how they're doing the backgrounds now? Exactly, so, where they it's essentially are a rounded video screen that allows all the actors to be immersed in the video behind. So they it's it's how they're 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 filming it now. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah. cool. So so he talked a lot about that. He he mentioned that, and he says he thinks it's great that effects look more more like real life, and but right now it takes a long time. But he said they'll be able to do it more quickly and on the fly. And he said, and it'll be more invisible. So, yeah. And he, and he said, for people who aspire to be a visual effects artist, Dennis says it's important to go to school, but you have to differentiate yourself from the rest. It's what's in your head and what inspired you that you have to, uh, that, that you have to, um, sort of move ahead. That look, look a lot at a painting or a sculpture that inspired you and write down the details about it. The horizontal lines, the vertical lines, the lightness, the darkness, how the head is turned or tilted. Bring out what you like out of the art piece and put it into your film. 
and then have a real memory of what you liked and hope it's what the public also liked. And he said Walt Disney was great at doing this. And as an example, he talked about, I think it was at the Chicago Art Institute, there was a picture he always liked, a, th- a painting he always liked. I think it was of a Spanish dancer. And he decided there was a bench in front of it, and he was really going to study it and take notes. And an hour and a half later, an hour and a half had gone by, and he realized that he had like filled his notepad with everything he liked about that portrait. And one of the things he liked was how the darkness, the the artist used darkness in it. And that inspired him. If you remember that scene in Jurassic Park where the T-Rex comes out, he reveals himself out of darkness, out of the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, we see him for the first time. That is, uh, that came, that inspiration came right from that painting. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, he he also recalled uh, in in time when George Lucas had uh, he had a helicopter to film a an a, a shot in Norway, and and it was it was an overhead shot, and it was six camera angles. And he asked Dennis if he could add a stop action tauntaun running across the scene. So all of us who have seen that film know the scene we're talking about. And Dennis said they didn't have the time nor the technology to figure it out. And he said, we could build a set to create the scene, but it wouldn't be as realistic. And George just said, just think about it. And he walked out of the room. So Dennis did. And in 15 minutes, he figured it out. And he said, the lesson is don't give up because in a few more seconds or a minute of thinking, it can bring that flash to help you figure it out. He said it doesn't always work out, but don't just give up right away. And he said he uses that as a test now. He, he, it to new special effects artists and all that. He shows the, the film and then he asks them, how would you have, how would you superimpose a stop action figure in there? How would you add it in? And some of them figure it out and some say there's just no way. So. Anyway, and and finally, he said, failure is not failure because you learn something. It's necessary. As long as you're being responsible to the project and you're contributing to um, making that film and that moment better, then you you can't just be free form because then you'll end up losing your job. But um, and, And again, I think that's a lesson that applies to whatever career we're in is um, we learn from failure, but you always have to make sure you're being responsible to whatever you're doing and that you're working to make it better. So, um, and so that's what I learned from my talk. That's a, from, that's a cool one. So I know, I know his name probably didn't attract a lot of people necessarily, but uh, you know, it, nothing against the, the other ones, but I mean, he just has years and years and years of, of knowledge in the industry and has worked on so many cool things. So uh, it, it just it was great hearing you get to to recap it because I'm I'm blown away by that one. Yeah, and I thought it's different. It, you know, it's not we're not just talking about animated films. You know, there's the live action films that yeah. now are in you know part of the Walt Disney Company. So I thought this was sort of a fun fun look at at, at these amazing films. True. 
True. Yeah. But now it's time to see what happened behind the scenes this week in Disney history. All right. Well, here we are. We're looking at the week of September 20th. So let's see what happened here. Um, all right. So September 20th, the hit television series, The Milton Burl Show, aired an episode on September 20th, 1954, featuring Ward Kimball's Dixieland Jazz Band. What is the name of his band? I believe that would be the Firehouse 5 Plus 2. That is correct. Very good. And Milton Burl Kids, if you don't know, he was the top television show and personality back in the day, back in the 50s. He was called Uncle Milty. He was considered Mr. Television. That's what he was, he was actually called that. And so uh, I have an old record. I think it was a 78 record of Donald Duck being on the, with Milton Burrow. And so he called him Mr. Donald called him Mr. Television. And I don't know. And I think, um, so Milton Burrow called Donald Mr. Animated Cartoon. And it went back and forth. I might still have that somewhere. Uh, That's cool. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Okay. September 21st, which Disney animated character received the 2418th star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on September 21st, 2010, the same day as the DVD release of their latest film. This character joined Kermit the Frog, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Snow White, and Winnie the Pooh with stars on the Walk of Fame. Hmm. I'm... You might have me on this one, so... Because I know Minnie Mouse wasn't until just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I can't think of what other character has one. So I'm going to have you give it to me. It's Tinkerbell. She received her Hollywood Walk of Fame star on the same day as the release of Disney's Tinkerbell and the Great Fairy Rescue. And, of course, Tinkerbell first became a Disney character in the 1953 animated film Peter Pan and was later featured in the opening of the long-running Disney anthology television series. I don't think I I knew that she had one, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, she's well-deserved. (laughs) Okay, September 22nd. Which Disney resort held its grand opening celebration the evening of September 22nd, 2012? 2012. That, um... I'm not sure. This is Disney's Alani Resort and Spa. It, they held an evening grand opening celebration. Although the Hawaiian Resort officially opened for business on August 29th, the grand opening event takes place at sunset on this day, along with Mickey Minnie Mouse, Bob Iger, the president and chief executive officer of the Walt Disney Company, and Tom Staggs, chairman of Walt Disney Parks and Resorts. Hmm. See, I'm I thought sure. it had been open for a little bit longer than 2012. Because my yeah. first trip was in 2013, and I felt like it. Part of the reason why we went with the Diz in 2013 was because it was, it was uh, our coverage was already out of date. But hmm. well, they had new. done a, they had done a lot of um, updates to it like right away. 
when they, I know when they realized that people weren't leaving the resort, they were staying. Yeah. And so they had to add more to it. Okay, September 23rd, the large and small signs are removed from this closed Epcot attraction on September 23rd, 1999. Which attraction was it? I'm going to guess that was Horizons. It was. It was Horizons. And it had been the only attraction in Future World to showcase all of Epcot's Future World elements. Communication, community, interaction, energy, transportation, anatomy, physiology, along with man's relationship to the sea, land, air, and space. Officially opened on October 1st, 1983 as part of Phase 2 of Epcot, and it permanently closed on January 9th, 1999. It was a remarkable pavilion. Okay, September 24th. On September 24th, 1953, Roy Disney learned that prospective financiers in New York for Disneyland want to meet next week. He contacts his brother Walt with a request. What did Roy ask for? Oh, um, I'm not sure. He needed a visual presentation of Disneyland to take with him to New York for the presentation. So a few days later, and I did not include this because I thought it would have been too easy, but like two days later, it's Walt gives her Ryman a call and the map and says, can you draw? (laughs) Spend the weekend drawing Disneyland for me. That would have gave it away. I know. Good call. Mm -hmm. Good call. Keeping him. Keeping me on my toes. Yeah. Well, see, I could have put that like two days later for September 26th. (laughs) Okay, September 25th. The final performance at the popular Walt, this popular Walt Disney World venue took place on September 25th, 2009. What was the name of this location? Hmm. 2009. I'm going to say this was, uh, oh, this is going to be a big, big guess, but I think this was around the time that Pleasure Island was closing down. So I'm going to say the Adventurers Club. You're absolutely right. The Adventurers Club at Pleasure Island took place as part of Congaloosh 2009, a week long weekend-long convention to celebrate the popular Adventures Club. Though the final public performance had taken place September 27th, 2008, for the f- or 2009 for the final night for all clubs at Pleasure Island. Well, no, it was 2008, the final night for all clubs. The Adventures Club was being used for private parties over the last year. Yeah. I always regretted never seeing it. We were going to see it, and Carol wasn't feeling well, and she had seen it before and didn't care for it. So I thought, well, I'll see it next time. And then it was like a month later they announced it was closing. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I mean, I was uh, I turned twenty one on uh, I turned twenty one in two thousand eight. But it had by the time I got down, it had already done the close. And then I was um, I was out of college for the the big finale event. But you know that was I I couldn't afford. 
to ever come for any any events or anything. I was just trying to get down here to work for Disney in the college mm-hmm. program at that point in time still. So I I never got the I never got to see anything. The closest I got was that the Destination D weekend where they kind of recreated it a bit at yeah at the the party at night. Yeah. All right. Hopefully they'll do something like that again. Yeah. So. If they, we always said if they built it at Disneyland, it would be wildly popular. Their mistake was not making it a time thing where, okay, you're here for an hour. This is this how long it takes for the show and all that. And then you're out yep. and all that. And then I think they could have made money on it. If they would so. do it again in Walt Disney World, it would be a huge success. But, oh, if, yeah. You know, if it can't kind of what you just said there, if if they can't uh if they can't find a way to maximize profits with it as much as possible then uh, it's not even on the table is something that could possibly happen yeah cuz they complain people would come in sit at the bar have a coke nurse it all night and you know wander through the rooms and yeah you know watch the shows over and over and over again so okay on september 26 the compass east corporation made up of many dump dummy companies responsible for purchasing the Florida land for the new Disney World theme park is renamed on September 26th, 1967. What is the new name of the company? I am not sure about this. Maybe something it's, with Buena Vista? No, it's it's very simplistic. The Walt Disney World Company. That's, that is very, <laughs> that's very simple. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's it. For this week in Disney history. That was a tough week. It was. It was. All right. In our next episode, we plan to continue our exploration of the Disneyland Man in Space series with a look at the second installment of the series, Man in the Moon, or it was later renamed Tomorrow the Moon. And although it's not available on Disney+, Plus. You can find it on YouTube and the Disney Treasures DVD set, Tomorrowland. So if you haven't watched it yet, you know, you have a week Mm -hmm. to watch it and we'll talk about it next week. So, and also, um, we talked about how we will have links in our show notes to our upcoming Give Kids the World activities. We'll have a link in the show notes for... Uh, the Man in the Moon series on U- Man in the Moon in YouTube. And Craig will also have a link to the Walt Disney Family Museum website if you want to learn more about the museum. There are some virtual experiences on their website. You, you can take a virtual tour of the museum if you care to. And also, we will um, also, if you want to become a museum member, you can do that on their website as well. Since museums are starting to open in San Francisco, well, at least they're, they're, they're getting the go-ahead. means the Walt Disney Family Museum may be opening um, shortly, although I haven't heard anything official. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the random shows on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network and then on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael Bowl at Michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. My on Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling Dash Connecting with Walt. And Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. 
If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig always includes in our show notes or at disunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 